Hello, and welcome to Based on a True Story, the podcast that compares your favorite Hollywood movies with history. Today, we're going to continue the discussion about the History Channel's TV series, Project Blue Book. And I say continue because it was a few months ago on episode number 152 of Based on a True Story that we learned about season one. Today, we'll look at the events that we saw depicted in season two. To help us separate fact from fiction in the show, I'm excited to bring back independent UFO researcher Rob Christofferson, who helped us learn more about the real history behind season one. And he's back today to chat about season two. Before we connect with Rob, though, let's set up our game. Two truths and a lie. If you're new to the show, here's how it works. I'm about to say three things. Two of them are true, and that means one of them is a lie. Are you ready? Okay, here they are. Number one. Despite what we see in the show, Dr. Hynek was never abducted. Number two. The alien autopsy footage was debunked by Project Blue Book. Number three, Dr. Hynek never investigated Skinwalker Ranch. Got him? Okay, now as you're listening to our story today, your challenge is to find the two facts scattered somewhere throughout the episode, and then by a simple process of elimination, you'll be able to find out which one is a lie. And of course, we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. All right, now it's time to chat with Rob Christofferson about the historical accuracy of Project Blue Book Season 2. If you're listening to this, then I'm going to assume you've already listened to episode number 152 of Based on a True Story, where Rob came on the show to talk about season one of Project Blue Book. That sets up a lot of the storylines and people that we see carry over into season two. But if it's been a while since you've heard that one, let's do a quick recap of some of the key things that we learned about in that episode and we'll also see in season two. Dr. J. Allen Hynek and his wife Mimi are real. The main characters we see in the Air Force on the show, Captain Quinn and the two generals, Harding and Valentine, are all composite characters based on multiple other people. Susie Miller and the whole Russian spy plot is not real. Uh, That last one, for example, means we won't really be covering much of the spy plot in this episode since, well, it's not real. (laughs) Um, Is there anything else that happened in season one that's important to keep in mind for the events of season two that I'm missing? You know, there were some UFOs. I think that's about it. I think you hit the high points. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, then let's dive into the second season. In the first episode of the second season, we're introduced to the Roswell incident. If there's one name that just about everyone knows that's connected to UFOs, it's Roswell. But that doesn't mean everyone knows the details of what happened there. According to the show, on July 5th, 1947, there was a major storm around Roswell, New Mexico. And then the next morning, a rancher by the name of Mike Connors found a field covered in strange metal. By the end of the day, his neighbors were collecting pieces of the debris, and he wasn't really convinced that it was man-made, so he contacted authorities. They swooped in, but someone leaked the story out. It hit the wire, and then it started to run worldwide. Newspapers in Europe even ran with the story. The show doesn't really say how the authorities shut the story down, but it does say that once Harding got involved... Two days later, Connors bought himself a brand new car and the town stopped talking. So I'm going to assume that they were paid off. The wreckage was flown to Texas, where Harding held a press conference explaining the saucer was nothing more than a weather balloon. Now, I know we could have an entire episode, an entire podcast just dedicated to the Roswell incident. But in a nutshell, 
How well did the show do depicting the events of the Roswell incident? Well, with this particular episode, the bare bones are there. You know, some details have been changed. The storm in question that starts the episode occurred on the night of July 2nd, 1947. And the man in question, they call him Mike Connors in the show. Well, his real name was Mac Brazel. And on that night, Brazel claimed to hear a strange sound that didn't quite sound like thunder and lightning. So he was the foreman of a sheep ranch owned by a man named J.B. Foster. And the next morning when he woke up to get started, he discovered a debris field outside. It was about uh, three quarters of a mile long by about, uh, I think, like 20 feet wide or so. And the debris itself and the witnesses who claimed to have held it said that it looked like metal, but when you touched it, it more closely resembled like plastic. So Brazel was puzzled by it because it, it, it just didn't look like anything he had ever seen before. So he drove to his closest neighbor's house, which was about 10 miles away. This was a really remote area. The closest town to the Foster Ranch is uh, a town called Corona, which is about 30 miles away. But uh, he showed the debris to his closest neighbors, which were Floyd and Loretta Proctor, who owned the ranch themselves. And they tried to cut it. They tried to burn it, but they were not successful in doing so. The Proctors urged Mac Brazel to report the debris to the authorities, and Brazel ultimately did four days later. It's not exactly clear why he waited as long as he did. It could have been a combination of the July 4th holiday and the hesitation on Brazel's part to do anything with it. But uh, on Monday, July 7th, he brought the debris to the Chaves County Sheriff Department, who in turn notified the Roswell Army Airfield which is uh, known today as the Walker Air Force Base. The base dispatched two officers, Major Jesse Marcel Sr. and Captain Sheridan Cavett to actually retrieve the material. Brazel escorted them to the ranch, and they actually ended up spending the night there before they headed back into town. They gathered up as much as they could, and they also tried to cut it. They tried to burn it. They also tried to hit it with a sledgehammer, and they found that they couldn't make a dent with it. So it wasn't until long after they brought it back that the military swarmed the place. And before Jesse Marcel Jr., or Jesse Marcel Sr., sorry, actually brought it to the uh, airfield, he brought it home where uh, his son, uh, Jesse Marcel Jr., and a few of his other family members claimed to have actually seen the wreckage. Some of them, some of the pieces uh, Jesse Marcel Jr. claimed had these like weird hieroglyphic writings on them that were in like this purple kind of script. But he said that it was more closely resembling metal. It's kind of one of those things that gets debated a lot. But uh, the uh, military just swarmed the place and they actually sent out a lot of this wreckage. It was ultimately going to be flown to Wright Field which later became uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, which is where Project Blue Book was uh, stationed out of. But um, in the meantime, while they were collecting all this stuff, the military decided to send out a press release. And the man that made that decision was a man named Colonel William Blanchard. And he informed the base's information officer, Lieutenant Walter Hott, to uh, send a press release into town and like, 
Hot physically brought these press releases to like the Roswell Daily Record and a few other places in town, which uh, seemed kind of odd for the times, considering that they could just send it, you know, via wire. But that that's uh, like one of the weird parts about this case, one of the tiny weird things. But um, it uh, ends up making the paper uh, the day like later that day saying, you know, uh, Roswell Army Airfield recovers flying saucer. While this was all happening, uh, Major Jesse Marcel Jr., he made a stop at Carswell Field in Denton, Texas, as he was accompanying this wreckage to Wright Field. And a gentleman by the name of uh, Roger Ramey, who was a general, he um, had Jesse Marcel Sr. pose with pictures of what um, they were claiming was a down weather balloon. And ultimately, the next day, they would retract their initial headline saying that they recovered a flying saucer and saying, no, it was all just a a weather balloon. Now, Jesse Marcel Sr. attested to the fact that it wasn't the same stuff. He was saying that they made up this mock weather balloon, had him pose with it, but it was not the actual wreckage that made its way to right field. And he went to his grave saying the same thing. Same with uh, Jesse Marcel Sr., What's interesting about this case is after it was retracted in 47, people in the UFO community, by and large, forgot about this case for about 30 years. It wasn't until 1978 when an uh, independent researcher named Stanton Friedman was actually told while he was conducting in a radio interview that he should talk to Jesse Marcel Sr. And from there... Roswell has become this big household name when it comes to UFOs and, uh, you know, not trusting the government because the government has changed their mind as to what was recovered on multiple occasions. And yeah, it's just this big cultural touchstone now. I've seen the the picture of him, I'm assuming Marcel, at on the front page of the paper. He's got holding something in his hands. That would be, then be what they staged as the weather balloon, not the necessarily the material that was actually recovered right yeah that's uh that's what jesse marcel both jesse marcel's claimed is that it was not the same stuff it was swapped out you know they were trying to keep this thing on the down low covered up and that's really why roswell is as big a thing as it is because given that the air force has changed their mind as to what it was on multiple occasions now nobody really trusts their explanation so you have a ton of explanations out there now there's um, a book called area 51 it was written by a woman named annie jacobson and she proposed at one point through one of her sources that what the roswell wreckage was was a russian craft that uh, had been sent over into american territory to cause hysteria because apparently Joseph Stalin was a big fan of um, Orson Welles, the War of the Worlds broadcast. Apparently he was a huge fan, according to her source, and that this was a mock thing dreamed up by the Russian government. That's probably like the low end of believability on this, but uh, there are a lot of interesting theories when it comes to Roswell. The weather's getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. 
Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer, and that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the Earn In app, verify your paycheck, and watch your earnings tick up as you work. Access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. I don't remember if it was in episode one, but I do remember the show actually mentioning that very, very briefly. I think that the two generals are talking to each other and one of them talks about how the things that Dr. Mengele did to those children and the saucer was Soviet propaganda or whatever. Like they just kind of imply that that's what it was, was it was Soviet. And then, of course, Dr. Mengele, the the Nazi doctor doing something to the bodies to make them look like aliens or whatever was I just remember that very, very briefly in, in the TV show. So it sounds like maybe that that's where that comes from. There are, you know, other theories like that out there. There's some that get really, really dark. But uh, yeah, the, the, it seems like everybody has a theory on Roswell these days. Well, heading back to the show in episode number two, it's the part two of the Roswell incident. And during this episode, we find out about a resident in town named Duncan Booker. And he crashes a massive UFO into the center of town to try to draw attention to what he says is the real story. General Harding agrees to go on TV with Booker to tell the world that this was nothing more than a hoax. But once they go live, uh, Booker's friend at the TV station starts playing footage of an alien autopsy. And then Dr. Hynek comes to the rescue and he realizes that, oh, look, the studio lighting in the footage is the same. This is this footage is a hoax. But then Booker insists that, that yeah, they recreated the footage, but it was from something that they actually saw. Now, I, I thought I remembered something about some alien autopsy footage that showed up quite some time ago, but I don't remember if it was supposed to be from Roswell or related to that or not. Is that real footage? And was it tied to the Roswell incident like the show implies? So the um, alien autopsy video was huge. It was a real video that came out in the uh, mid-90s. During that time, that's where UFOs were kind of hitting their cultural boom. This was when Roswell had really blown up in popular culture. And it was actually all thanks to Unsolved Mysteries. Unsolved Mysteries was the first show to really give that case its due. By this time... Aliens and and UFOs are big, and they're appearing on a lot more television shows. And uh, one of the networks that really ran with it was Fox in the in the 90s, and uh, they ran a program in 1995 called Alien Autopsy Factor Fiction, and it was hosted by Jonathan Frakes of Star Trek: The Next Generation fame, and uh, a man by the name of Ray Santilli came forward saying that he found footage of an alien autopsy, and 
he had at the time been looking through a retired military cameraman's footage, searching for footage of Elvis for like some documentary. And uh, he claims that he stumbled upon this autopsy of an alien being that he says was one of the bodies at Roswell. So the Fox airs this special and it is huge so much so that they re-air it a couple months later kind of just dies down for about a decade when in 2006 Ray Santilli claimed that the footage was a recreation of footage that he had seen in 1992 it had degraded so bad that he couldn't actually save it so instead he he has this convoluted explanation that uh in fact he actually reshot the footage re- recreated everything in order to like you know bolster his claims but it's it definitely didn't help his case but um in 2018 a filmmaker named uh, Spiros Malaris revealed that he was actually the creator of the film and he claimed that he created the alien sculpture using foam and stuffing the insides with basically animal parts so this video footage kind of keeps like reappearing every now and then. There was a uh, leaked government document uh, late last year in which two guys, uh, one of them was a um, a high-ranking military member. The other had been a consultant with the government saying that this footage was real, but uh, nobody at this point buys that it's actually real. <laughs> well, it sounds like the show is taking that concept, but there, I mean, this is happening in the, well, I mean, Roswell being in 47, but then, you know, this happening after the fact in the 50s and stuff like that with the, as far as the TV show timeline bounces back and forth. But none of that, it sounds like if it surfaced in the 90s, it sounds like they're taking something from decades later and and throwing that in there just to add to the narrative. Yeah, pretty much. There's always been UFO hoaxes. They've always been prevalent. The first UFO hoax goes back to 1947 in these kids. And I forget exactly what town they lived in. Uh, I think that it was called Woodworth. And they ended up at uh, this is when Kenneth Arnold had his famous sighting. It was shortly after that uh, in sometime in July. And these kids mocked up this UFO and they put it on this one lady's lawn. And the reason that they put it on that one lady's lawn is because she was known as the town gossip and she knew and they knew that uh, word would get around really quickly and to the point where the uh, National Guard actually ended up coming to town and these kids got in trouble. So, I mean, it, there's always been hoaxers and there's always been people trying to make a buck. And I mean, Ray Santilli probably made a kill in selling videotapes. So. <laughs> <laughs> When they're investigating on the show, Hynek and Quinn, they come across a soldier who was at Roswell, and the soldier's name is Stuart Terry. He tells them that there wasn't just one crash site, but there was a second one. And at that second site, Terry talks about how he shot something. Uh, later, he recovered the remains, buried on his land, and then Hynek and Quinn go to where it was buried, and they find some skeletal remains. But then it, I think there was a mention as well where someone mentions how the authorities asked for five child-sized coffins. So maybe there was more than just the one being that we see uh, shown on the actual TV show. But what about this concept of two crash sites at Roswell? Were there were there actually two crash sites with multiple being supposedly found? There have been a few different narratives concerning you know the crash saucers at Roswell. One being that the craft 
in question was hit by lightning over the Foster Ranch and it created this debris field and that the actual saucer crashed 150 miles away in a place called the Plains of St. Augustine. In the late 70s, early 80s, as Stanton Friedman was researching this case, he learned of a story through a secondhand and thirdhand sources. A lot of people came forward saying that this guy named Barney Barnett discovered the crashed saucer and alien bodies at this place called the Plains of St. Augustine. And Friedman was never actually able to talk to him directly. He had died about a decade before he started researching it. But a lot of people came forward. I, I want to say like maybe five or six people came forward and said, oh, yeah, Barney Barnett. He told me the story about how he saw these um, uh, alien beings in this crash saucer all the way in this at this site. And there was also allegedly an archaeology class that had walked up upon it at the same time that he did. There's also speculation that what had happened was that there were two saucers that crashed and one ended up at the Plains of St. Augustine and the other allegedly crashed two to three miles away from the Foster Ranch. But nobody's ever really been able to like, you know, pin it down to one. And again, that's what makes Roswell this like narrative that has been built on over and over again upon time. Um, the child-sized coffin portion of this comes from a man named Glenn Dennis. He uh, was a part-time assistant at the local funeral home, the Ballard Funeral Home, and he claims to have received a call from the Army Air Force inquiring about the availability of child-sized coffins. He claims to have delivered three or four of them to the base, and uh, he also claimed to have ran into a nurse on the base who had witnessed the alien bodies and even drew a sketch of them on a napkin, of which um, Dennis actually recreated. I don't think, like, th there are photos. If you Google Glenn Dennis alien sketch, you'll see, you'll come upon, like, this, um, there's, like, four small images on what looks like uh, you know, a piece of, like, white stationery. I think he ended up recreating it, but his testimony has been called into question uh, simply by the fact that they've never been able to confirm who this nurse was at the uh, Roswell Army Airfield. So, um, yeah, these uh, these are uh, this just attests to the reason why Roswell is this like ambiguous mound of uh, testimony at this point. Yeah, it sounds like nobody really knows anything. So everybody comes up with different theories. And there's a little little nuggets of, of fact or nuggets of testimony or something like that, that then just blossoms into different types of theories is what it sounds like. Yeah, exactly. Well, moving right along, we're in episode number three now and Project Blue Book has a case at Area 51. It involves two soldiers, Willingham and Miller, and they were doing a routine patrol when Miller was abducted by a UFO. When Heineck and Quinn get to the site of where it happened, you can see the sand there was turned to glass. Other than Roswell, of course, everyone knows about Area 51 and how it relates to UFOs and, and top secret cover-ups and things like that. But was Dr. Heineck ever there to investigate an abduction like we see in the show? Abductions were something that Project Blue Book tried to distance themselves from. And we really didn't get... Uh, our first abduction account until 1961 when Betty and Barney Hill had their experience, you know, which we briefly talked about in episode 153. It was the inspiration for one of those episodes. And 
they tried to explain away certain portions of their sighting. Uh, so, for instance, the only parts that they investigated were the sighting of the actual craft in the sky, which they claimed was, I believe, like an advertising searchlight or an advertising like plane or something like that flying at like midnight or whatever, which was a really ridiculous explanation. It's a great time to advertise. Yeah. <laughs> It's a great, great time. Let's advertise to that the the single couple that are just driving on the highway. This is just like <laughs> they call that targeted advertising. That's that one. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. But uh, the only abduction investigated through like the guise of Project Blue Book was the abduction of a police officer named Herbert Shermer in 1967, and it wasn't exactly investigated by Project Blue Book uh, personnel, but by an independent body that had been brought in to study the phenomenon called the Condon Committee. And this committee arose in 1966 after a series of sightings in um, Michigan, to which Dr. Hynek uh, probably made the biggest, uh, what many would consider career suicide at that point by uh, labeling a UFO sighting as the um, product of swamp gas, which is where that, that term came from. These uh, sightings occurred in uh, Dexter Hillsdale, in the Dexter Hillsdale region of Michigan. But Shermer's case is is kind of fascinating because he's a police officer with the Ashland, Nebraska Police Department. He was fluent in multiple languages. He was a very intelligent man. And um, in this, on December third, nineteen sixty seven, he was on a routine patrol. He was uh, on a rural road when he saw a light, which he assumed to be a vehicle having trouble. And when he drove up on it, it was a UFO. And he stopped his car. And in the next moment, he appeared to be missing time. Through the Condon Committee, he was subjected to hypnosis. It was later revealed that he had uh, been taken on board this UFO, been shown around by some really interesting looking aliens. And he was ultimately returned. But this case like caused such an uproar to the point where uh, Shermer was driving to Colorado, the University of Colorado, where this project was being handled. And during one trip, a group of people actually ended up destroying his car for no real reason. I, I, I still don't understand it to this day. It was uh, it, it caused it seemed to cause some kind of uproar. but. Um, Shermer ended up serving for a little while longer in Ashland, Nebraska, and then he ultimately moved to the Pacific Northwest, where he uh, died in 2017. But um, there's actually a really cool graphic novel created about his sighting. It's called December 3rd, 1967, An Alien Encounter by a guy named Mike Jasorka. And Shermer claimed that um, he, he eventually read it, before he died and he claimed that he had come to see his see his sighting in kind of a religious sense so um that's really the only abduction case that project blue book ever gave the light of day most of them really went unreported uh until the 80s when you know more and more people started to come forward or then you had scattered incidents. Most of them would be 
relegated to the uh, UFO journals and such, but abductions just weren't something that Project Blue Book wanted to handle. And really, any incidents involving sightings of alien beings, they would downplay, they would only investigate certain portions of it, especially when it came to like U- the UFO sightings itself. But when it comes to animate beings, Project Blue Book said, no, we're out, we're done with this. It sounds like they're almost the TV show is almost doing something similar to what they did with the autopsy footage, where they're finding an excuse to, in this case, bring in Area 51, because everybody under- knows what Area 51 is. So we need to have a reason for Dr. Hynek and Captain Quinn to to be there to basically have Area 51 on the show, because it's a show about UFOs. And so you have to have Area 51, right? Yeah. Area 51 is just kind of the hot gossip around town. And wasn't until a uh, journalist named George Knapp, he started talking to a guy named Bob Lazar. And Bob Lazar, he his credentials have never fully been proven, but that has not stopped him from speaking on the record many times, saying that uh, he had uh, worked briefly for the government. He, he had worked like maybe less than a month, uh, two to three weeks or so, reverse engineering this uh, UFO, which he affectionately called the sport model, which uh, has always been kind of funny. <laughs> oh, cool. They have like SUVs and the sport coupe versions and stuff. Yeah, I would assume so. You know, like there's got to be a caravan somewhere in there in Area 51, I would assume. <laughs> <laughs> of course, you know, travel in style. <laughs> I, w- I wanted to ask you about something with Area 51 because the show gives the indication that there's more than just the base. There's a scene where we see Dr. Hynek and Captain Quinn. There's like this massive complex, massive doors opening in the side of a mountain. And Quinn says something to the effect of what we saw back there at the base with just the cover. This is the real Area 51. Is there any evidence to suggest that the base that everyone knows is at Groom Lake is just a cover for some sort of massive hidden base nearby? Bob Lazar claimed that... He didn't exactly work at Area 51. He worked at a portion of Groom Lake nearby that they called S4. And S4 was supposedly this huge underground complex, went down for miles, and that's where they were storing all of these uh, UFOs that had crashed and that the government was trying to reverse engineer. And they also housed, apparently, aliens that worked with the U.S. government. And I mean, like, there are many places many bases that people claim aliens work with the government on technology and stuff like that so really that extends from bob lazar and his claim to work at s4 and the interesting thing is is that george knapp in the introduction to bob lazar's autobiography which came out late last year he claims that he called up nellis air force base and said is there an S4 uh, anywhere out there? And the guy's like, yeah, there is. So it's like, well, if, if George Knapp can call up and ask if there's an S4 out there, why can't anybody do it? Like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, is that all it took? Somebody just picking up the phone and making a call? <laughs> That's all. It seems to be. That seems to be it. Like, all you need is a phone and, you know, some, uh, you know, liquid courage. And they'll tell you that S4 does exist. 
There you go. If we head back into the TV show, episode number four covers an event in Hopkinsville, Kentucky. According to the show, Jimmy J. Shoemaker is in the woods near his house when he sees a UFO fly over. And at the house, his entire family sees creatures in the woods. We can see a shot where uh, his family is all lined up with rifles and they're shooting through the walls of the house at the creatures outside. Shoemaker tells Hynek and Quinn when they get there that aliens landed there and tried to kill them all. And then later we find that Shoemaker happens to run a circus. He has monkeys. He has costumes for them and a green glaze to make look like alien handprints on the trees we saw. So... Project Blue Book determines that this was all a hoax, even though, again, we have the same sort of theme. Shoemaker is claiming that he was just recreating the things that actually happened. It's similar to what we saw with Duncan Booker in the Alien Autopsy a couple episodes earlier. So how well did the show do depicting this event in Hopkinsville? The Kelly Hopkinsville incident is one of the most fascinating UFO related incidents since the 50s. It's uh kind of one of those cultural touchstones to the point where it inspired a a character a pokemon uh so i mean it's one of those cases that you know it, it perks up a lot of people's ears so um you know they got the there's, there's the bare bones there it occurred in the hamlet of kelly in kentucky on august 21st 1955 and it occurred on the farmstead of the sutton family at 7 p.m. that evening, a friend of the family, the, the guy's real name was Billy Ray Taylor, claimed to see a UFO with this colorful exhaust. It passed over him. It hovered near some trees nearby, and it came down. And this was as he was going outside to collect some water. Now, these folks, they did not have electricity. They didn't have running water. They had an outhouse. You know, this is rural life to the fullest so billy ray he comes inside and he tells everybody oh i saw this ufo you know it came down it's out back and uh, nobody believed him but an hour later he and his friend uh the one that he was there to visit lucky sutton he lived in the house they went outside when their dogs just started to bark uncontrollably and at first they saw what they believed to be a strange glow coming from behind their property. And as it moved closer, they were able to make out small humanoid creatures about three and a half feet tall. They claimed that its head was, uh, it was oversized. It was round and it, and it had really large ears, which was one of the more curious features of this creature because you don't often see ears reported on aliens. But uh, in this case, we do. And their arms were almost as long as its entire body. They they hung really low. And uh, its hands had talons on them, of all things. So this thing is scary as hell. They had eyes that glowed a pale yellow color. The two men immediately went inside, grabbed firearms, and pointed it toward the this creature that was coming toward them. And this creature had its hands raised as if it's saying, don't shoot at me. But they fired anyway. This creature did a flip. It fled under the cover of darkness and disappeared. Now, mind you, there are 11 people living on this farmstead at this time. And it's really in a small three-room shack. So you have eight adults and three children. And many of them saw 
creatures appearing at the window after this. So it was about maybe a half hour to 45 minutes later that one of these creatures appeared at the window. They fired again. And again, this creature just flipped and fled into the trees. It fully escalated after Billy Ray Taylor stepped out the front door and had his hair pulled by one of the creatures who had climbed up on top of the roof. The family, they all packed inside their house. They hold up for a few hours listening to the footsteps on the roof until they eventually fled to their cars and drove to the police station. The officer that accompanied them back, he claimed that these are not the kind of people that would go to the police to solve their problems. So they were really uh, scared. They were shook up um, and they accompanied them back to their house. But all they found were some spent shell casings. There were holes in the uh, screen windows. But after the police left, the, the creatures actually came back. It was at approximately 2.30 a.m. The matriarch of the household, Miss uh, Glennie Langford, saw one of the creatures near her bedside window, and it put a hand on the window screen, and I would be scarred for life if I saw that. <laughs> I mean, I've seen horror movies that start this way. This is <laughs> Yeah, exactly. This is a horror movie in the making. It's happening in real time. So... It was about 5.30 when these creatures backed off and they were never seen again. And uh, the family's ordeal made the national news headlines. And because of the way this case was portrayed in the news, there were a lot of details that were blown out of proportion. Like a lot of papers said that there were like up to 11 of these aliens when the family claimed that they only saw three of them. But... Um, it's from this case that the term little green men is something that entered the vernacular and it's something that kind of exists still today because uh, if you look at many of the popular images of alien heads, they're usually green and it's uh, because of this case. According to documents, Project Blue Book never took an official interest in this case, though Heineck did later write about it in one of his books. This is definitely... I would say the uh, the real true-to-life case is a little more interesting than the way it was displayed in Project Blue Book. I think the, the problem that I have with Project Blue Book is uh, there really isn't a lot of lift mystery left over when you start to explain everything away. And, you know, I think that's one of the fatal missteps of the second season is they just start to explain things more and more. One thing they did mention in this episode was... Uh program in the cia called mk ultra and they're supposedly doing some work with precognition is there anything about mk ultra like was that an actual program oh yeah project mk ultra was a real project it was a cia funded study pertaining to mind control through the use of lsd and other psychological measures mk ultra is a whole other can of worms and it like you could probably do, a, I could go on forever talking about it, but uh, I, I, I want to direct people to a few different resources because I, I, it is one of the more, it's one of the darkest portions to the work the CIA has ever done. But our friends at the Not Alone podcast did a three-part series back in 2019 on MK Ultra and just the. Uh, extent that uh, that project went to there's another 
great podcast that just made a five-part series on a Canadian physician's part in that program. It's called Madness, and it's from the the podcast Endless Thread. That's a really great series. One book I'll recommend, too, that just came out last year, because more and more people are starting to take an interest in this case, and it's uh, a lot of it has to do with the death of a man named Frank Olson, which was the subject of a Netflix series called Wormwood. But um, there's a book that came out last year called Poisoner in Chief by Stephen Kinzer, which is a really fascinating book. So, uh, yeah, if you really want to see like the dark end of some of the uh, CIA's research, uh, go check out those things. We head back to the TV show and episode number five happens at a place called Maury Island. And according to the show, it happened on June 21st, 1947, two weeks before the Roswell incident. A man, a fisherman by the name of Ernest Reed was out on Puget Sound checking his traps. After about an hour, something appeared overhead. He described it as round. There's a silver craft with holes in the middle and there were bigger than his boat. There were multiples of them. We see kind of a recreation of it on the show and they're hovering less than 100 feet over his boat, but there's no noise. And then something seemed to go wrong. We couldn't tell if one of the ships was breaking apart or if it was trying to bomb him on purpose, but there's pieces falling all over, hitting his boat. And that's when he called in a mayday claiming that he was under attack from alien ships. But then soon after the event, Reed recanted his story and said he was just trying to get some insurance money for fire damage on his boat. And then the show says that this was the first time that, quote unquote, men in black hats were reported when they showed up to silence the town. How much of that happened? And was this the first time that anyone saw the men in black? The Maury Island incident is uh, one of the more controversial UFO cases. But as the story goes, the gentleman's name was Harold Dahl. He was recovering logs in the Puget Sound on June 21st, 1947. That's when he noticed uh, six donut-shaped objects that were heading in his direction. And one of the objects appeared to struggle maintaining altitude. It dropped to about 1,500 feet, and it floated directly over Dahl's boat, and it started to drop what he claimed was slag-like metal down into the sound, and some of it ended up hitting his boat. The debris ended up hitting his son, Charles, breaking his arm. And some of the slag actually killed their dog, too. Dahl claimed to take a photo of the craft, though no, it's never surfaced. Nobody's ever seen this thing. So, you know, that's uh, sketchy. But uh, he showed it to his supervisor, which was a, a man named Fred Christman. Christman didn't believe him, though, and he went to investigate it for himself and claimed to have seen a UFO while he was out there investigating. So the next morning, a man wearing a black suit showed up at Dahl's house and escorted him to a diner, and he proceeded to recount Dahl's experience the day before as proof that he knew all about his experience. So Dahl was told by this man, don't ever speak of it. Don't ever tell anybody. Otherwise, bad things are going to happen to you. Eventually, uh, I mean, Dahl ended up telling his story to, to a lot of people, but he eventually recanted his story. But it was investigated by two people, Kenneth Arnold, who I you know previously mentioned. He was kind of the first like independent UFO investigator, and I think people looked to him just because he had a sighting. 
And he was accompanied by a number, another man named Captain E.J. Smith, who had witnessed a UFO while piloting a passenger plane sometime in July. They didn't believe Dahl or Chrisman, though the alleged debris that they had, I believe it was Kenneth Arnold had talked to a couple of Army intelligence officers who ended up coming down. They were going to escort some of this uh, debris back to have it analyzed. And shortly after takeoff, their plane actually did go down in the Pacific Northwest. And uh, there's been a lot of conspiracies that have come up. The reason this story and the Men in Black angle itself was popularized was because of a book written by a man named Gray Barker called They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers. Um, The book featured the Murray Island case and a handful of others in which individuals had contact with shady men wearing black suits telling UFO witnesses not to talk about what they saw. And I think the interesting thing here is that after Dull kind of talked about his experience, his work, which was on the Puget Sound, kind of started to dry up and his son went missing for a period of two weeks and was discovered working in a diner in Montana and he had no clue how he got it, how he got there. And we know that portion of the story is true because there was an FBI file opened on it. So there are some elements of the story which are true, but I think they're used to fuel the more sensational aspects of this case because uh, I do believe at one point Harold Dahl's wife also attempted to stab him because of all of the controversy revolving around the case. She kind of just wanted him to cut it out, but uh, yeah, almost stabbed him. But uh, this is like one of the more controversial cases in that not a lot has been proven. And if I recall correctly, Fred Crispin was one of, it was actually one of the people subpoenaed by the uh, Warren Commission when they were investigating the assassination of JFK. And he has had ties to the military and I think maybe the CIA, but um, don't don't quote me on that exactly. But yeah, it's uh, it's a kind of a whole can of worms, the, the Maury Island incident. Speaking of can of worms, I want to ask you about something else about the men in black, because during this episode, we learn more about someone from season one. And in that season, he was simply known as the fixer. Uh, in this episode in particular, we find out that his name is William and he used to be part of a remote viewing program for the CIA. But then he left that program and joined a group simply known as the men in black. The idea that I got from the show was that the men in black isn't a part of the CIA or the military, but they still seem to have powerful resources. And after I watched the uh, the show in this episode and kind of how they explained it. I still really, really wasn't sure if William left the CIA to start the men in black on his own, or if he just joined a already existing group somehow, I'm sure men in black can be again, entire series by itself. But how well do you think the show did just explaining the men in black themselves and who they're supposed to be? There are a lot of different theories when it comes to the men in black. That's definitely one that these are government agents. Some believe that they are um, independent agents that work of their own accord. Some believe that they are actually aliens as during the uh, Mothman series of sightings, which you've covered with uh, our good friend, Sam Fredrickson, people had encounters with 
men in black and they would act as if they didn't know what random mundane items were like pens. Like there was one case in which um, the uh, main reporter of the town, her name was Mary Hire. She was kind of the woman who led the charge on reporting the Mothman sightings in the paper, printing the, the reports. And she ended up having an encounter with this strange man. When he came into her office, he started asking strange questions like, what do you think John Keel would do if I, if uh, they told him to stop talking about the Mothman and, and stuff like that? And uh, at one point, he reached for a pen and he was holding it as if he didn't know what it was. And uh, Mary Heyer said that, you know, he could have the pen, at which point he turned around and laughed and ran out. So like, okay, yeah, there's a lot of weird stuff around the men in black. There is even one theory that a guy named Paul Cornell, who wrote this, uh, this comic series called Saucer Country. And in it, his take on the men in black was that uh, they were actually Air Force agents that would, as part of a hazing ritual, go and harass UFO witnesses that uh, their reports ended up in the news. So they'd show up on their door, you know, pretending to act like government agents and stuff like that. It's, uh, you know, there's a lot of takes on uh, the uh, Men in Black, and they never cease to amaze me. Uh, <laughs> there's another interesting account from this woman who claimed to be a remote viewer who said uh, at one point she was going to review, remote view the uh, Men in Black. So, like, remote viewing is kind of like it's sending your body out into the world to like kind of like see things from a distance you know so uh this woman claimed that uh these beings were extra dimensional beings from a different dimension they kept balance you know making sure that uh evil aliens didn't interfere in, in human affairs and they also had a ton of paperwork to do <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Well, it sounds like at least the at least the show is going off one of those theories, <laughs> even though there's a lot of them. <laughs> yeah, there's so many there's so many angles that they had to uh, work with on this, and uh, they could you know go a million different places. And uh, you know, I'd say I'd say Project Blue Book went the more mundane route. Now, um, I had a I had a conversation. With uh, with my buddy Rich Haddam, the, the guy who wrote uh, the screenplay for the Mothman Prophecies. And he said that when they were first pitching this idea for Project Blue Book, he actually went in and he was trying to uh, pitch himself as the showrunner for Project Blue Book. He didn't get it, obviously, but, uh, you know, it would have been it would have been fitting seeing as how, you know, he's uh, he, he's well versed in this stuff. <laughs> well, speaking of the show, if we head back, we're in episode six now, and this is where we learn about the Robertson panel, as well as someone named David Dubrovsky. The storyline in the show suggests that there's a battle between control over UFO investigations between the U.S. Air Force and the CIA. The CIA puts the Air Force on trial with the Robertson panel, which looks into the validity of Project Blue Book's work. In the hearing, it seems no one is interested in really diving into the reports from Blue Book. They pretty much just skim them and then close them as if they already have the answer that they want, and this is just a formality. But that's when David Dubrovsky comes to the story. He convinces Heineken Quinn to let him talk to the panel, 
where he says that he was directed to be there by beings from another planet, planet Venusius, which is two galaxies beyond ours. And he leaves the room and then Quinn says, we're doing our part by stopping people like Dubrovsky from inciting panic around the nation from people who might actually believe that they're telling the truth. How well did the show do depicting this? Did any of that happen? The Robertson panel was a, a real panel. It was led by the CIA, and that did, in fact, change Project Blue Book's mission from an open-minded investigation to skeptical debunking. But it didn't really happen. It didn't really go down like this. Uh, the Robertson panel was led by the head of the CIA's Office of Scientific Intelligence, and they saw the potential hysteria that these sightings could cause. Life magazine at the time was claiming that the evidence of alien life was like around the corner. They were, you know, they believed that alien life was going to show up at any second. And in the last episode that I was on, there was a pair of uh, dramatic sightings uh, during two consecutive weeks over Washington, D.C. that I talked about that um, really got the government a little worried to the point where the CIA felt like they needed to step in and gauge Project Blue Book and dictate its mission. The um, number of UFO reports in 1952, uh, right before the Robertson panel came in, went up dramatically. Most years after 1947, they would get like maybe 30 reports a year, 30 to 50. That year, they got over 130. So they saw this as a huge concern and they thought it could be used as a kind of like psychological warfare tactics. So they recommended educating the public on debunking sightings. And, you know, this isn't to say that Dubrovsky's character didn't exist in the UFO world and the UFO culture. There were a number of people that were dubbed the contactees who claimed to have contact with, Venusian aliens who wanted mankind to basically get rid of its nuclear weapons to protect the environment. So, yeah, it's uh didn't really go down the way it did on the show, but it's uh it's close. I mean, the Robertson panel's there, but uh I as far as I know, there were no contactees that were led in front of the Robertson panel to testify at any one point. Okay. Well, I, that was I want to ask you about that because in the show, the Brofsky character, he is claiming that aliens directed him to go help prove the validity of Project Blue Book. But if aliens wanted to prove the validity, couldn't they just show up to the hearings themselves? I think there is even a, a line in an earlier episode where Captain Quinn is, says something like, why are all these sightings happening way out in the woods? Couldn't they just come to like Times Square? <laughs> why, do, why do they have to be so cloak and dagger about everything? Uh, are there any examples of stories where the, the logic like that just kind of doesn't make sense? So many contactees, especially in the 1950s, had stories like this, and they would also use that kind of similar logic. In fact, pretty much all of them did. When it comes to these stories, they're never truly about going to the government with uh, this information. It's usually about proving the validity of their own sightings. But I'm pretty much every single one of them, the George Adomsky, who was one of the most well-known contactees of the 1950s, basically reported the same things 
there was George Van Tassel, Orfeo Angelucci. Even during the the Mothman stuff, um, Woodrow Derenberger was that type of individual. Uh, Despite the fact that Woodrow wasn't coming to the government to say, you know, to cut it with the nuclear stuff, a lot of them did. A lot of them did, and a lot of them faked evidence to bolster their claims, and a lot of them made money doing it. So in the 50s, that seemed to be the contactee kind of thing. You know, make money claiming that you had contact with aliens, that they're peaceful, but they just want us to cut it with the nuclear crap. (laughs) (laughs) Well, back in the show, we're at episode number seven now, and it is the curse of the skinwalker. This case takes place at a ranch in Utah owned by the Chapman family. One night, their son Billy is sleepwalking outside when three orbs of light fly over. And then they fly into the ground, forming a creepy sort of shadow monster or something of some sort. The family runs away, of course, because that's creepy. And Blue Book is called to investigate. Our heroes are looking at the case. Heineck and Quinn are told the story of the Skinwalker. As the legend goes, the Ute Nation used to abduct Navajo and sell them on the New Mexico slave market. So the Navajo put a curse on them and the land, and that land happens to be where the Chapman's Ranch is now. Skinwalker is the name of the that the Navajo gave to a medicine man who is chosen to take the form of an animal in order to inflict pain and suffering on others. The explanation that the show gives for all of this is that the scientists at an Air Force base some 10 miles east of the Chapman Ranch are drilling down in the caverns under their ranch. They're using a high-powered water mixture into the fault line, And these release pockets of ethylene gas that can give people aural and visual hallucinations. So it's quite a connection from the skinwalker to just being a hallucination. But was Blue Book involved in skinwalkers and this idea that they're just a hallucination like the show indicates? The basis for this episode is an actual ranch in the Ute Valley of Utah. It's called Skinwalker Ranch. It was owned by a couple named Terry and Gwen Sherman, and they claim to have experienced rather large wolves, strange UFOs, portals, poltergeist-like phenomenon, and a variety of other phenomenon on their property. The Skinwalker has kind of become this concept appropriated by from like Native American culture, and it's largely because of a book called Hunt for the Skinwalker, which was uh, chronicled the Sherman's time on the ranch. It's safe to say that Project Blue Book never investigated this case and never really would have either. It wouldn't be in their wheelhouse at all. They were really more concerned with investigating like single sightings as opposed to long-term areas and stuff like that. But uh, in many ways, this episode seems like a plug for the new show that they had started that was airing after project blue book um the season finale it was called uh, the secret of skinwalker ranch and it was all about uh the new owner of the ranch brandon fugel it's a brandon fugel show it's uh, definitely a, a, a moment to cash in that well the property didn't really come to the forefront until the mid 90s and really it didn't come to the public conscious until about 2006 10 years later but uh yeah it's, it definitely seemed like more of a money grab and uh project blue book wouldn't be uh, investigating a place like this no. 
Well, if we head back to the show, we're on episode number eight, and that introduces another concept that is familiar with UFOs, and that would be Hangar 18. Heineck and Quinn are told about it by a mechanical engineer named John. He explains that Hangar 18 looks more like a storage building than a hangar, but the real lab is six floors deep. That's where they reverse engineer Soviet technology. But this time, John says they have something that's not Soviet. The suggestion there being that it's extraterrestrial. So what is Hangar 18 and are there reports of reverse engineering UFOs there? The idea of Hangar 18 is actually connected to the Roswell crash and in particular to a few pilots who claim to have flown wreckage and alien bodies to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Uh, one of them is a man named uh, Oliver Henderson who uh, told his story to uh, like a number of uh, Roswell investigators uh, claimed that uh, he actually flew the child-sized coffins uh, all the way to Wright Patterson. And there's a World War II flying ace named Marion Black Mac Magruder, who uh, also claimed to actually see living alien beings walking around in this uh, fictional hangar. There is really no Hangar 18. It's just kind of been this myth that has been propagated ever since the Roswell investigation. But I mean, it did inspire a Megadeth song. So I, I, that, that's got to be worth something. <laughs> it's got to be worth something. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. What about the idea that Heineck was there? Because we see in the show that Heineck actually gets there. Is there anything to suggest that Heineck himself was at any place like that? No, there's uh, yeah, there's nothing. Heineck was really close with his secretary, and he seemed to tell his secretary pretty much everything. There might have been some secrets that Heineck, you know, kept to himself. But uh, yeah, I don't think Heineck visited any kind of facility like that. (laughs) Well, back in the show, now we're at episode number nine. And this case is a Soviet bomber carrying a nuclear bomb that gets cut into by a UFO over Canadian airspace. And Blue Book is called in because the Canadian Air Force doesn't have a UFO program. So Heineck and Quinn make their way to a small logging community at a place called Hartley Bay, way out in the middle of nowhere. They find the plane along with the two pilots that survived. One is just called Alex, but the other pilot is given a full name, Lieutenant Colonel Yuri Oblinsky. And that makes me think that maybe Alex is made up, but maybe Yuri is real. How much of this case really happened? The actual case that this episode is based on is it's honestly a little more terrifying than the one on uh, this particular episode. So on the night of November 23rd, 1953, the U.S. Air Defense Command near the U.S.-Canadian border detected a blip on radar over restricted airspace above Lake Superior. The Air Force scrambled an F-89C Scorpion jet from Kinross Air Force Base piloted by 1st Lieutenant Felix Moncla and 2nd Lieutenant Robert Wilson. And from the start, Robert Wilson had trouble tracking this thing once he got in the air, and it kept changing course like really quick. But with the aid of ground control, they were eventually able to kind of get a lock on this object. And they pursued it for over 30 minutes, getting closer and closer. Eventually, Moncla and Wilson were guided down from... 25,000 feet to about 7,000 feet. The radar operators watched as you know one radar blip chased the other and a short while later they lost radio contact with Moncla and Wilson 
And the witnesses there claim to see on radar these two objects merge into one and fly off. Now, Monkle and Wilson have never been seen again. Nobody knows what happened to them. Wreckage from their plane has never been found. They just disappeared. And there have been some like hoaxers coming forward. There was one in 2006 he claimed to be from a company called the Great Lakes Diving Company. They claimed that they found something like a plane in Lake Superior that was never, it was ruled a hoax. But like Moncla and Wilson have never been seen since. And if you look at Moncla's tombstone, his uh, memorial, it's it explicitly states that he died while in pursuit of a UFO. What about the idea in this episode, we see Dr. Hynek actually neutralize an atomic bomb. Did he ever actually do anything like that? Probably not. He, he had worked with rocketry, but I don't think he had worked with the atomic bombs specifically. And, uh, you know, maybe in a situation he'd be able to know how to disarm it. But I don't know. What I love about this show is like they, they kind of treat Dale and Hynek as if he's like a jack of all trades. <laughs> <laughs> he's the hero of the show. So, of course, he's going to save the day no matter what. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Well, at the end of that episode, episode nine, Dr. Hynek and Captain Quinn get to meet Senator John F. Kennedy when he stops by the Project Blue Book office. And the case from Kennedy takes place during Operation Main Brace. This goes into episode number 10. There's a massive multinational military exercise that involves some 200 ships, 80,000 men. And if anything happens during a war exercise that size... Near Russian territory, it could spark World War III. So, Heineck and Quinn investigate aboard USS Wisconsin in the North Atlantic near Norway. They find out that this UFO experience, that this sighting that's happened, it's not coming from the sky like all the others, but it's actually coming from underwater. But there's something else about this. There's a fishing trawler that was there. It left Shanghai some 11,000 miles away just two days ago, and the fuel tank is still almost full. Needless to say, that's impossible. And at the end of the episode, Quinn takes a mini sub underwater to where the flying crafts are coming from. But the Admiral orders depth charges drop anyway. And the last we see of him is a massive explosion outside his sub. We assume he's dead, except Dr. Hynek believes maybe he's not. Maybe he was transported somehow like that boat from Shanghai. Did any of that happen? Operation Mainbrace itself was a real operation like the sensational parts you know definitely didn't didn't happen but uh operation main brace at the time was composed of dozens of nato organizations that uh, had sent ships to participate at the time it was the largest peacetime military exercise since world war ii and it was meant to uh simulate a mock attack on europe it was involved uh 200 ships a thousand planes and over 80,000 men. And during this exercise, UFOs were spotted. The first sighting came on September 13th, 1952. The crew of a Danish destroyer spotted a triangular shaped object with blue lights on it, moving through the night sky at high rates of speed. Seven days later, aboard the USS Franklin Delano Roosevelt, a reporter named Wallace Litwin claimed that several pilots and flight crew members saw a silver-colored sphere in the sky following behind the fleet. 
Um, there is an actual photo of this object as well. Many have tried to bunk it as a weather balloon. It doesn't appear to be a weather balloon. And um, the only places that it could have been launched from have uh, denied launching weather balloons around this time. Uh, it was also moving way, way too fast to be a, a weather balloon. An object had been seen the day before that sighting on September 19th as a British meteor jet was returning to an airfield after conducting exercises in the North Sea. And uh, the pilot of that flight claimed to see a strange silver circular craft following the meteor. They described its movements as that of a falling leaf from a tree, which uh, is a, a common thing reported in a lot of UFO sightings is that some of these objects uh, appear to be like uh, doing a slow falling pattern at times. The object stopped in midair, rotated, and then took off fast away from everybody else. But uh, yeah, main brace was a real exercise. They saw some UFOs. Um, I don't know that Kennedy really played a part in it, but um, it, it is a pretty fascinating set of sightings. Was Kennedy associated with Project Blue Book at all? No, he was not. There have been theories that people have suggested claiming that Kennedy knew alien secrets that he had told them to Marilyn Monroe and that that's why the both of them were assassinated. But there's really no truth behind those statements at all. It's just a conspiracy theory. Yeah, I think the show kind of alludes that there was a. Uh, I- I think at the end of episode number eight, there was a brief line of dialogue with Daniel Bakes in the CIA. He's talking to General Harding, saying, when it comes to the CIA, no one is untouchable, right? In my mind, ties, okay, it's something with the JFK assassination as a CIA plot, somehow tied to Blue Book. <laughs> right, right. And that's the thing. And that's also like the ambiguity that the uh, assassination of John F. Kennedy is kind of... Uh, lended itself to the Warren Commission really didn't do a, a good job explaining themselves and explaining uh, everything that happened. But y- yeah, it's just, it seems like with some conspiracy theories and the longer that they are around, the more they get added to and the more people come out of the woodwork saying, well, you know, this happened or that happened. Um, it, it's always, it's always interesting to read them sometimes, but uh, yeah, don't, I don't put a lot of stock in <laughs> well, that makes sense. I did want to ask about, um, I think it was in episode three, there was a scene where we saw Heineck and Quinn in a Jeep and a big UFO flies over, lights shine down. And then by the time the camera focuses on the Jeep again, Heineck and Quinn are gone, giving the impression that they were both abducted. Was Dr. Heineck ever abducted himself? No, he, he was never abducted. When he came to present his theories and stuff like that he was very guarded he was always very uh skeptical he was never rash to point to one thing he had his theories and and he had his leanings but when it came to a case-by-case basis he he would never go there per se and, and and say you know that this is true or that is true and uh given that uh Heineck even disputed the one UFO sighting that he claimed to have while looking through a telescope. So he's always been that skeptical kind of guy. But uh, as far as I can tell, and through all the research, he has never been abducted. Well, we have talked about a lot of different 
concepts and things that they put into the show, things like Area 51 and, and, and Skinwalker Ranch and these other elements. If you were in charge of this season of Project Blue Book, was there anything that you wish would have made it onto the show that they left out? I think there are a lot of other interesting sightings that they could have really gone to. And and like I say, with uh, especially with the Skinwalker Ranch episode, you look at that and you, you see that it's just a kind of a walking advertisement for another show that's that's coming out. But uh, I'm glad that they included things like the, the Kelly Hopkinsville incident. I think the Herbert Shermer sighting is fascinating in the fact that we're talking about a police officer that uh, claims to have been abducted by aliens. I think that would have been a more interesting case to present in that means. There is a case known as the RV 47 case, and it's kind of the one case that many have put up as like the best scientific evidence for UFO because it, it literally involved a UFO following a uh, radar plane in the sky over hundreds of miles. It's a, it's a pretty fascinating case. Really. I I think they did the best that they could with the season, but uh, yeah, the, I can't think of any other cases off the top of my head right now, but uh, those two are, I think would have made for interesting episodes. Well, thank you so much for your time to come on to chat about project blue book season two. I've learned a lot. It's been a fun chat. Yeah, thank you again for having me on, Dan. It's been so fun. This episode of Based on a True Story was produced by me, Dan LeFebvre. I'd like to thank Rob Christofferson for coming back on the podcast and sharing his expertise as we separate fact from fiction in the TV show Project Blue Book. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. And as a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, despite what we see in the show, Dr. Hynek was never abducted. Number two, the alien autopsy footage was debunked by Project Blue Book. And number three, Dr. Hynek never investigated Skinwalker Ranch. Did you find out which one is a lie? Let's count it down backward and start with number three. Dr. Hynek never investigated Skinwalker Ranch. That is true. As Rob explained, Skinwalker Ranch didn't really come into the public eye until the 90s and early 2000s, but even if it had been an area of interest during the time of Project Blue Book, it really wasn't the type of place that Dr. Hynek would have investigated. Instead, Rob clarified that the Skinwalker Ranch episode was more of a plug for another History Channel TV show all about Skinwalker Ranch that was scheduled to air soon after Project Blue Book's time slot. That brings us to number two, the alien autopsy footage was debunked by Project Blue Book. That is, that's the lie. Even though we saw Dr. Hynek debunking the alien autopsy footage soon after the Roswell crash in the TV show, Rob pointed out that the alien autopsy footage, which was real, didn't emerge until the mid-1990s. And as you might expect, the footage blew up and it got popular. It went viral. The claim was that it was a recreation of some footage that the film's creator had actually seen. So very similar to what we see in the TV show. But then... In 2018, a filmmaker came forward to say that he created the film using foam to make the alien. Despite all that, the timeline for this footage just doesn't add up with Project Blue Book's investigations in the 1950s and 60s. That means number one is also true. 
Despite what we see in the show, Dr. Hynek was never abducted. Rob explained that Dr. Hynek only ever had one UFO sighting himself, and even then, he debated the reality of what he saw. He was never, nor did he ever claim, to be abducted like the TV show seems to very heavily imply. That just about wraps up our time together today. Before we go, the last thing I like to do on each episode is to share how much time and effort went into creating this episode. I know that's not something that most podcasts do, but that's exactly why I'm sharing this information. There's one thing that's really surprising to most people who are new to podcasting or have never created a podcast before. It's just how much time goes into creating them. So I figure maybe if you find out how much time and effort went into creating a podcast like mine, then maybe you'll start to appreciate all of the podcasts that you listen to for free just a little bit more. With that said, today's episode took a total of 73 hours to create and cost $31.12 in out-of-pocket expenses. Whew, this one took a while. And as I always do, I want to make it clear that time and cost is only my time for this one episode. In other words, that 73 hours does not include the countless hours of my guest time researching the subject matter we talked about. It also doesn't include the time it takes for me to do podcast-related things that are not a part of creating this one episode. For example, the time it takes to maintain the Based on a True Story website, uh, doing social media, email communications, and all those other little things outside creating a podcast episode that are still required in order to keep a podcast afloat. Similarly, on the expenses side, that $31.12 is just for things specifically for this one episode, which is going to be mostly research material. It doesn't include the podcast-related expenses that go beyond making a single episode. For example, the cost of the microphone that I'm talking into right now, the cables hooked up to the microphone, the audio interface, the computer, the software, everything that it takes to record the, the podcast and website hosting costs and on and on. All those things take time to set up and maintain, and they cost money, and that goes beyond things that are associated with this one episode. But they are all things that are required because if I didn't do those things or have those things, then there wouldn't be any episodes of Based on a True Story at all. In a nutshell, this podcast may be free to listen to, but it is not free to create. So that is why I'm so thankful for the wonderful people who are helping to support the show financially so we can keep it going. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll consider helping support the next episode over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. And as a bonus, you'll get access to hours of exclusive content on the producer's feed. Right now, there are over 50 minisodes over there covering a different fictional movie for each one. For example, we've covered history in movies like Pirates of the Caribbean, Jurassic Park, the entire Back to the Future franchise. And for the past few weeks, we've been going through the Mummy franchise, finishing it off next week with a new minisode about the 2017 attempted reboot of the franchise. There are hours and hours of bonus content available immediately and plenty more planned and in the works just as a way of saying thank you for helping me keep the lights on here at Based on a True Story. Once again, you can find out how to get access to that by supporting the show over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. In the meantime, if you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll share it with a friend. Until next time, thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon. <laughs>